My guest today is Grace Llewellyn, author of the Teenage Liberation Handbook, founder of Not Back to School Camp, a close friend, and uh, where are we right now, Grace? Where are we hanging out? Where are we? Re- we're at my house. We're recording at your Next house. Next to our cat, my cat. <laughs> <laughs> What's mine is yours while you're here. <laughs> mi, mi gato is tu gato. Yeah. See. Si. Yes. Uh, and we're here to talk about the Teenage Liberation Handbook, and and this book has already received uh, a lot of mentions on this podcast. But this is a special episode because what we are holding right here in our hands is the the third and final edition. There will be no more editions. There will be no more editions <laughs> of the Teenage Liberation Handbook, subtitle "How to Quit School and Get a Real Life." and Education, 30th Anniversary Edition, revised and updated. Because um, we'll, we will forget to talk about this once we get into it. Uh, where can people find this book if they want to purchase a copy? Well, anywhere books are sold. Uh, so Amazon or any bookstore can easily order it all around the world. Great. Easy to get. And libraries, too? Yeah, uh, especially if you ask your library to order it. I think it hasn't made its way into that many libraries yet. We will change that. Thank you. Yeah. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, the very first Teenage Liberation Handbook was published in 1993? 1991. Nin- oh my gosh. That's how this is a 30th anniversary <laughs> no, edition because no, it came my- out last year in 19... 19- or in a... 20, <laughs> 21. I told you I was going to have trouble with the numbers, but you also are having trouble with the numbers. All right, we're equal footing here. Uh, 1991 was the first edition of the Teenage Liberation Handbook. Um, uh, just for those who are not familiar with the book at all, can you in- encapsulate the, the spirit of, of what was in the book then? And it still largely is in the book now. What was the Teenage Liberation Handbook in 1991? It was the first guide for youth as opposed to for parents on how to get out of school and um, design your own education and live live your own way. And uh, what was happening in your life? Uh, what, what brought you? You explain this in the book beautifully, um, but for listeners, what brought you to, to write the book? Well, I was a teacher. Um, I was teaching middle school language arts, and I had gone into teaching because I didn't really like school, but I loved learning, loved reading, loved writing, and I figured that the reasons I didn't like school were pretty surface level and that I could create something different in my classrooms. I pretty quickly discovered that it was more systemic, and I pretty quickly started thinking that school wasn't the greatest option and discovered unschooling, homeschooling, and felt that teenagers needed their own book and that I couldn't keep teaching school anyway. So I quit school and wrote that book. And who read the book and and who responded to it? You received a lot of correspondence by mail uh, in that time. I did. Um, well, the intended audience read it, which pleased me greatly. So a lot of teenagers who had been in school up until that point got a hold of it, read it. Some of them quit school. Um, I was really surprised with the other categories of people who discovered it and loved it. I was really surprised that homeschooling families um, pretty quickly started um, using it in their own families. Um and sharing it with their friends. And I was really surprised that I got a lot of mail from teachers and school counselors and a fair amount from like education professors and a ton of parents. And then I was at the time in my mid 20s and I just heard from a lot of women my own age who were who had nothing to do with the school system. They were just on their own journey and in some way, I guess they resonated with my perspective or my journey. So that that was that was probably most of it. And you got some some really flattering praise for this book. Um, you know, and and this was your your first book. This was a self published book, 
And uh, you've told me some stories previously about, for example, getting it reviewed by Booklist, mm-hmm. which is, um, that, a, that's big among librarians. It's a library trade journal. I think it still exists. Yeah. So it's, if, if you get mentioned in Booklist, then a whole bunch of libraries order your book. And I was really lucky that happened for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. What were your other big breaks with the book? Um, well, Growing Without Schooling magazine and the, the people who worked there were very supportive and they really helped that. I think it was because of them that the homeschooling world knew about the book. That's John Holt and Pat Faringa's. Yes. John Holt had already, um, passed at that point, but Pat Faringa and Susanna Sheffer was the editor and she was, um, she turned out to be my age and we had a lot in common and she was just a really great supporter and Pat was as well. And yeah. Yeah. And John Taylor Gatto blurbed your book. He did. Yes. Such a sweet man. (laughs) And uh, you you also told me a story about trying sort of a story of, of you as, as a, someone who had to, to hustle to get some, some marketing for this book. You, you once, uh, maybe perhaps more than once, acted as your own marketing, uh, impersonated your own marketing agent in, in trying to sell the book. To... Yeah, well, now self-publishing <laughs> is really common, right? And I don't think there's any stigma. But at the time, uh, it, it seemed like if you're a self-publisher, it was important to pretend that you were not a self-publisher. So when I would send out review copies of my book, I would use a fake name and sign off as the, I think it was like the marketing director of Lowry House Publishers. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, A big thing that came out of the TLH 1.0, as we call it, uh, was not back to school camp also. How How did your summer camp emerge from the energy of the first edition of the book? Right. Well, um, after the book came out, I was invited to speak at a bunch of homeschooling conferences. And side note, I, I hadn't formed a plan for what I would be doing after the book. I was already teaching dance classes, and I kind of had a whole separate life around other interests. But when homeschooling associations are reaching out to me and inviting me. I, I kind of didn't even realize that it would be a choice to say no. It, it's a very odd thing when I just written a book about take the reins of your own life that I wouldn't then pause and say, is this something I really want to do? So for better and for worse, I said yes to a lot of these. And I say for worse because I really was not ever very good at giving talks to big audiences. Um, not not a good skill set for me. But um, there were always some great things that happened. And one thing that happened was they would put me in a room after my talk. They'd put me in a room with all the teenagers and tell me to do something with them. And so out of that, I would, I would just get little snippets of these teenagers' lives all over the country. And I'd start to wish that they could meet each other and... Um, And at the same time, I was really missing working one-on-one with youth. I was missing certain things about having been a teacher. So those two impulses, I guess, combined and made me start fantasizing about a summer camp, which I never would have done had I had any idea how much work it would be. But I'm so glad I did it. So. Yeah. And and we did a whole separate episode a number of years back about not back to school That's camp. That's right, we so, did. So you can go listen to that episode for more of the backstory. But uh, the first year of not back to school camp, I, I I think I can nail this one, 1996. You got it. Yes, fantastic. And shortly after that, you had a second edition of the Teenage Liberation Handbook, TLH 2.0. I did. And what, uh, if I remember correctly, there was a lot of of correspondence, a lot of a lot of letters written to you by teenagers that, that filled the back pages mm-hmm. of that edition. Um, what else was in the, the second edition? What else was different? Oh, some updated resource recommendations. You know, John Gatto had actually said to me that he thought this book could be a cottage industry for me, and he just thought I should update it every couple of years. And somehow it was just in the back of my head that I should just frequently update it at that point. Um, but the first I really got around to it was in 
98. Um, yeah, so just some fairly minor updates and yeah, the appendix with correspondence in the back. And an advertisement for not back to school. Oh, yes. In the back. That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, and it was just a few years after this that I discovered the Teenage Liberation Handbook, um, 2002, I believe, when I was in uh, college and fell in love with the Sudbury Valley School Books and quickly, perhaps thanks to the early Amazon.com algorithm, found the, the Teenage Liberation Handbook. And I just wanted to read the the section of chapter one uh, the title of the chapter is sweet land of liberty which got me hooked on this book um, here it goes how strange and self-defeating that a supposedly free country should train its young for life in totalitarianism and i'm, I'm going to skip a few little um, example dialogues here um, what do you think of when you hear the word freedom the end of slavery the end of the Berlin Wall, a prisoner tunneling his way out of solitary confinement in Chile with a spoon, an old woman escaping her broken body in death, gorillas dancing in the jungle instead of sulking behind bars. When I hear the word freedom, I remember the sweetest sunlight pouring over my teenage cheeks on the first sleeping-in mornings of summer vacation. Do you go to school? Yes? Then, this is the line that sold it for me, you are not free. The most overwhelming reality of school is control. School controls the way you spend your time, what is life made of, if not time, how you behave, what you read, and to a large extent, what you think. In school, you can't control your life. Outside of school, you can, at least to the extent that your parents trust you to. Quote, comparing me to those who are conventionally schooled, writes 12-year-old unschooler Colin Roche, is like comparing the freedoms of a wild stallion to those of cattle in a feedlot. This is uh, from the, the modern third edition of the Teenage Liberation Handbook. Uh, I mean, this is powerful language. Uh, what, what were your responses? And so before we, we zip ahead to the story of the third edition, there's a number of years in between the second edition and, and the third edition from um, 20 years yeah, plus. Um, what was your your uh, response uh what response to the book did you receive during this time and and how did the book um age how did the book e evolve um for you like did you continue to feel proud of it did you can did did the language that you used which was the language of of 26 year old uh highly highly motivated uh to to write something that that makes an impact grace did that continue to sit well with you well, it it sat okay with me, I think, because I knew that I had written it in my 20s, and I assumed that my readers, for the most part, um, would receive it as something that I, that, you know, was written by a young person. I never felt ashamed of it, or maybe, maybe there were a couple little parts. I actually, for the second edition, I removed maybe five or six swear words. <laughs> um, so, and it wasn't that I was ashamed of them. It was just that I really wanted the book to feel more accessible to a wider range of people. Um, there were a few Christian homeschooling kind of leaders who, who were supportive of my work um, and who basically said, look, um, without those words, more people would benefit from your book. And I, um, trusted them and took it out. Anyway, sorry, I do ramble. Um, I would, the way that I wrote the book probably felt less and less representative of who I was as I continued to make my way through life. But, um, you know, I still pretty much felt fine about having said it the way I said it the first time, mm -hmm. if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. And when did you start thinking about a third edition? Well, I think I always, even just as soon as I published that second edition, I knew there would be another one. Uh, I still think I had the general idea that from time to time I would update it. And it wasn't long after the second edition came out that 
the internet really completed its total domination of human culture. So there are, it's not that the internet is missing from the second edition. I should have said, when you asked me what changed about the second edition, the internet did arrive into the book at that point. So um, yeah, I think I knew that it would just need an update before too long in terms of resources, but life was busy. I moved on um, and gradually, even though my notes stacked up, uh, the space in my life and the clarity of how I would get it done kind of faded into the distance until one day in 2017. <laughs> if I remember correctly, I was I was looking on Amazon again for a copy of, of the book to give to my little sister, who I think was graduating high school. And... Um, and I could find some used copies, but there weren't that many, and they were expensive, and and there was just no new copy available for for purchase. And as someone who had had self published a few books at this point and and knew about print on demand, I thought this this situation cannot stand. The world needs access to this book. Also, there was no ebook available. There was no Kindle right. or, yeah. or or other ebook version. And so I, I, I believe I emailed you and I said, Yes, you did. Grace, we. <laughs> I said, The TLH is, is a wonderful book. I, I know you've been talking about writing a third edition. I, I think it's time and I, I humbly submit myself as your editor for the third edition. Does that match your memory? Yeah. 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 And I said, Okay. We're doing it. Let's go. Let's take four years to. <laughs> let's, let's take the next four years to get this beast out there. Uh, so let's talk about our our process here, um, and let's start with with the broad intentions here at the beginning, because I definitely. I, You're a minimalist. Yes, I had some opinions, and I shared them with you. You're and, concise. Yeah, I, I like. Short books. I strive to write short books. Yeah. I, I always appreciated the Teenage Liberation Handbook as as a thick book for the for all of the the resources and specifically the the books that you recommend that that teenagers explore because you you pretty much walk them through the entire world uh, of possible intellectual pursuits, all the different academic subjects, things outside of of academia and. And you, in the second edition, which is the book that I read, you make very specific recommendations. And and in my mind, I thought, okay, well, now that the internet is here, it's time to to remove uh, or, or, or grossly reduce the number of specific suggestions because, and then sort of insert, you know, broad agnostic faith into the power of the internet and, and information technology to, to provide the answers to specific content requests. For example, if a kid wants to learn about chemistry, what, just let him go Google like the best recent chemistry books uh, or, or find some, some lectures online. Why make specific recommendations? That's the mindset I was coming from. And so I, I believe I said, how about we radically reduce the size of the Teenage Liberation Handbook to make it less daunting? Um, take all, keep all the, the content recommendations, but put them online for people who want to, to dig into those and, and really focus on uh, the the first two parts of the book, um, which really are the the more philosophical uh, and, and motivational parts of the book, and to which you responded. Well, I think I responded and you know kept you on board and lured you in further by saying, "Sure, sounds good." <laughs> <laughs> right. I'll take Pretty that much. into consideration, Blake. You make excellent points. Well, at the time, I don't think I thought I didn't think to myself no I could never agree to that I thought yeah that makes sense yeah and what happened next <laughs> not that <laughs> go on well let's see this is now ancient history but um I mean what eventually happened is a longer not shorter well it's about the same really but only because we took out a lot of stuff to make room for all the new stuff. Um, what eventually happened was the opposite of that. But I think in the interim, maybe how that started happening was 
Well, okay. I was a fan of the internet, but I'm not the world's greatest fan. And as I just poked around doing some of that hypothetical, okay, I'm a independent chemistry student and how I'm how am I going to find my resources? I found that <sighs> Sometimes the the breadth of the internet is not matched by the easily accessible depth of the internet. And even though, sure, anybody can Google anything, and I do all the time, and I am a fan of that, it's still also really valuable to have thoughtfully, carefully, well-curated, or I should say well-researched curations. I'm going to use the word curate three times there. Um <laughs> Um, recommended resources that are really, that have a lot of energy behind them. And mm -hmm. well, whatever, it's my temperament to <laughs> do things in an extensive manner. And what happened is I expanded the resource sections instead of shrinking them down. And that would have been a perfectly good way to do the book. And sometimes I think both of us could have done many other things with those four years i mean <laughs> I, I have a let's see a specific memory i'm not sure why it's why it's this one but i was in a in a little cafe in in germany working through about 700 track changes on on one of the one of the sections, the sections yeah. that you sent back to me i think in the second revision of perhaps four total four or five even four or five yeah. total revisions yeah. of, of a, a manuscript of how many total words like a hundred thousand oh god i don't know something like that yeah it's a lot it's a really long book yeah yeah we went through <laughs> that probably scares away all potential readers <laughs> well it's, I mean, it's 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 chunked down into little sections with big subheads so it's easy to browse that's through. right don't it, be scared a long book <laughs> extremely well-organized book and also you know for those who are intimidated by by long books you can start right at the beginning and 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 the first couple sections in, in my opinion are are the most heavy hitting sections and as you keep going you get to to linger more in these pools of, of specific content recommendations but as you wrote very clearly as you guide the reader in in the book you say you don't have to read this thing from a to z in fact you probably shouldn't yeah jump around jump around jump around yeah. I want to hear your memory, though. I'm sorry, I hijacked. There you are in Germany in a cafe. Oh, I mean that—that that was pretty much oh, it. It, oh, it was just, just the, like, wow, this yes, this is yes. this is a bigger project than than I, I envisioned, and uh, and so at at some point, I, you know, the, the reality settled in that this was not going to be the streamline book that I thought, but the the content recommendations were going to uh, be here to stay, and they were going to be thoroughly updated, and. Uh, and it, it's not just books anymore. You you essentially went into each of the content sections and you did your own deep dive and found podcasts. You found found YouTube channels, just static or you know interactive websites. I mean, you you went everywhere. Like you had an entire learning journey yourself doing this third edition. It seems I did, and it's still pretty book centric because. Uh, both because I'm a pretty book-centric person and also because I do think that a lot of those more internet or digital um, resources are easier to turn up via the internet and they're going to change and renew more often. So they're, they're, they don't take up as much space in the recommendations as books do. But yeah, I did. I, I deep-dived. <laughs> Deep dove. Deep dove. Uh, some of the uh, the subchapters of of part three, you, the tailor made educational extravaganza, include unschooling science and technology, unschooling math, unschooling the social sciences, unschooling English, unschooling foreign languages, unschooling the arts, sports teams and athletics, other school stuff turned unschool stuff, the call of the wild, which is about going out into wilderness and nature, world schooling and college and fast food and apprenticeships and volunteering and jobs and starting your own business and working on farms and social and political activism. Is there any potential area of, of life or interest that you, you did not touch or you feel you, you may have neglected? 
oh, in the end here. Well, there are de- not everything is in there. I remember I almost started a world religions section. Well, I did start a world religions section to go in the social sciences chapter, and then I took it out. And same with philosophy. There are definitely, you know, uh, sub-disciplines or even disciplines that are neglected. But I, I think in 1991, I set out to kind of map from a fairly standard school curriculum to how you could translate that to unschooling. And um, so I tried to kind of keep it generally to that realm. But there's more to, you know, I could have, I could have, there could be a volume too. There will not be, but <laughs> there could have been. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and for the record, I, you know, I'm totally convinced that the, the well-curated list of high-quality recommendations, um, you know, d- despite my misgivings about <laughs> how any list produced by anyone nowadays is will fall into a certain state of disrepair, mm-hmm. perhaps in just a few years. Mm-hmm. But but still, uh, a lot of what's in here in terms of the those content recommendations are still timeless books. Yeah. Well, and it turns out that a lot of the books I recommended in the first edition have been updated and still make their way onto classics in the field lists and stuff. So that was a little bit vindicating. Um, and I use the book. I use these lists. <laughs> I do. You know, I... If if nobody else gets anything out of this new edition, I will be getting something out of it because it's like very carefully written notes to myself. Yeah. So. And your book, uh, excuse me, your house is filled with books. <laughs> it is. It is the the Lane County Library uh, is your frenemy, and, <laughs> and uh, vice versa. And, and your, your walls are lined with books. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do you feel? When confronted with, um, I don't know, maybe parents who say, you know, I, I love your book, I love reading it, but my, my child's not really a reader. They're, I have a non-reader, you know, they're, they're more interested in consuming other forms of content. Um, I mean... Sure. I mean, not everybody is going to use the resource lists in the manner in which they were intended by me. But a lot of families use my book. I mean, everybody uses it differently. So in a lot of families, it's really just the parents who read it and talk about the ideas amongst their, their you know, with their kids. Um, sometimes the parents are the ones who really dive into the resources and pull out, you know, a chapter here or there that they think their kids will like. Um, but there are still there are youth out there who love books and I hope to, uh, you know, increase their ranks or at least, (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. Stoke the fire. (laughs) Stoke the fire. So let's talk about, um, just broadly how your, your world worldview, um, has evolved over the past 25 years since the second edition of the book came out. So with regard to education and, and how the world has changed. And, and a lot of this is reflected in um, the third edition, in the way you talk about approaching unschooling, in the, the, the way you, you recommend that you go about learning something. Um, but a lot of it has to do with more like, you know, family or personal or societal challenges also. Um, it's not the same world that it was in the late 90s. Um, so I pulled out a few specific themes that, that seem to... Uh, come up over and over again in the book. Um, yeah, the first one is the you're very careful not to demonize school in in a way that I think many people could could have interpreted the book, especially in its first edition. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, essentially, school is not all that bad. D- does this mean you've? Well, I don't know that I say school is not all that bad. I it felt really important to me to not demonize the people who work in schools. I never intended in the beginning to do that either. I mean, I had been a teacher and many of my friends were still teachers at that point. And um, it was never my intention to demonize them, but I felt like a renewed sense of of um, responsibility to make sure I was absolutely clear on that point. Um, 
Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, You're... maybe to be more clear, I think you you gave more credence to the idea that school might be the right option yes. for for you to be a mythical teenager yes. at some points in your life. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, well, you know, there was one thing that I, one idea that I think I was more attached to in my 20s than I am now. And I got it largely from reading John Holt and perhaps Ivan Illich. And it had to do with the idea that even if you enjoyed school, even if you enjoyed school, even if you did well in school, that your participation was maybe morally not okay because you were um, you were contributing to a system that then was like like your A's and your doing well in school was costing somebody else and was part of an overall system that was tracking students into successes or failures. So even if you were one of the successes, maybe it just ethically perhaps was not right for you to be there. I didn't really go into that in my book because I was just speaking to the individual who might feel that they wanted to get out of the system. But that that concept was informing my perspective at the time. And I, I think I could still say about a lot of institu- institutions, societal institutions, that that the institution itself maybe arose from um, a pretty problematic place and it's not ethically pure, but I still think to some degree we just work with what we have. And so I don't have that same um, school is just wrong and it should be abolished kind of idea floating around the back of my mind that I did then. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. And on the other side of the coin, you make it more clear in this edition that unschooling is not a panacea. It it won't solve all of your problems. Right. Um, And I think with special attention to like mental health um, challenges. Right, right. And that in, in my 20s, I didn't, when I started writing my book, I didn't even know any unschoolers. I'd read tons and tons of their words. And I, by the time I was done with the book, I'd certainly met some and spent you know, some extended time with a few, but it was easy for me to still be somewhat idealistic and put this whole category of people on a bit of a pedestal. And I definitely don't do that anymore. (laughs) Um, So it's easier for me to see that regardless of what large scale situations or choices we make in our lives, we're still human, we're still dealing with the human condition and yeah, mental health. So those who isolate, those who aren't really proactive about maintaining social connections. Yeah, it's easy to, um, it's easy not to thrive. Yeah. Well, and so this in-between period between the second and third edition includes this fairly well-documented now rise in, in diagnosed mental health disorders, uh, self-harm, um, admissions to um, pediatric um, yeah. you know, yeah. hospitals. Uh, and, and so this is a widespread phenomenon among the, the age group that, right. that the, the book targets. Right. And, and I think it's, it's easy, and a lot of people, including myself, you know, make the argument that, that school creates um, a lot of the, the pressures or fa- facilitates um, parents be, you know, becoming more high-pressure, results-oriented, yeah. mm-hmm. yeah. um, and, and that contributes to it. But people like Peter Gray point their finger at um, you know at school, but also at the, the reduction in just free play, yeah. um, time for free play, which is, is connected to homework, of course. Yeah. Um, and so in the midst of this kind of growing mental health um, awareness and some call crisis, um, yeah, how did this factor into the new edition of the book? Um, well, I'm aware that many people start unschooling specifically because of anxiety, which maybe may have been triggered by school or just depression or other mental health issues. And like you said, just the overall rise in, in those kinds of experiences for youth. I just, I know about that now and I didn't know about that. Um, 
in the 90s. And so, well, there's specifically a section on mental health, but they're a short section. Um, I'm no expert, but... um, Has it been your experience that, that, or have you heard from, from young people that say, I... I thought unschooling would would radically make my life better, and, and it didn't. I still have the same, um, for example, mental health challenges that that I, I did before. Do, do you think um, unschooling may have been promoted not just by you but by others? As, sure. Uh, I have not heard – nobody has articulated that to me in yeah. quite that way, but – I have seen it, you know, I, I work with unschoolers at not back to school camp year after year and, um, they're not free of mental health challenges. And, um, I think it makes sense to consider leaving school if, if it seems that school is, is triggering, um, mental health issues, but at the same time, there are aspects of unschooling that if you're not attentive about them it can also exacerbate Hmm. um the isolation in particular like Mm -hmm. which i would never want to imply or be interpreted to say that unschoolers have no social lives but when you're out of school you you have to decide what you're going to do with your life and your time and if you don't decide to maintain connections and i mean connections in person not just on the screen um or on social media then you can suffer. So I wanted to at least acknowledge that in this yeah. edition. And this this blends right into the discussion about social media and the fact that we are technically more connected to each other through through different mediums of, of connection than, than ever before. Whereas, you know, when you were giving advice in the first and second editions to unschoolers who are feeling lonely or isolated or the, you know, the unschooler in Montana or Alaska, you know, it was about you know, writing letters mm-hmm. to each other. Um, I mean, not back to school camp. It seems like it played a big life. Yeah. This gives me a big role in many young people's lives precisely because of that isolation factor. And now, and now you can you can find friends online, but as you just said, they're, they're just friends on screen. Yeah, it's not enough for almost everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but of course, you're not limited just to other unschoolers. You can connect with anybody in your community including those who go to school and i think you just have to be proactive about it okay yeah yeah that's the trick yeah another thing that's different now and that you mentioned throughout the book um, is the existence of new forms of self-directed learning centers or alternative schools but the the one that you are a biggest fan of is liberated learners liberated learners center which follows the model of North Star in Western Massachusetts. Another thing I've probably mentioned about a thousand times on this podcast now, but yes. they deserve well, it. They so deserve it. Okay. Yes. Uh, tell us a bit more about your relationship uh, relationship to liberated learners. Um, well, I think it just started when many years ago, I probably got a letter or something from Ken, Ken Danford. Oh, actually, I think I met Josh Hornick, who was the other co-founder of... Um, well, anyway, I just heard from them long ago. They were both former middle school teachers who decided um, they wanted to support young people. In um, they didn't want to just tell them about it; they wanted to actually create a place that would help uh, young people leave school. And my book was definitely not their only influence, but it was a catalyst. Um, and so they let me know, and they started ordering cases of my book, which that was probably how I maybe first <laughs> when someone starts ordering, <laughs> when someone cases, starts ordering of your book. cases yeah yeah um and yeah over time i got to know them a little more and i got to go out and speak at their um 20th anniversary jubilee which was so inspiring to me that i decided on the plane home that i needed to open a liberated learners center myself which i did in a hurry and it kind of flopped cuz i didn't take my time and get enough uh, support really on board. Although I say flopped, but now there are still other people working to revive it. So it's not dead. It's just only dormant. Uh, anyway, yeah, no, I love what they do. I just love what they do. And I love that they're, um, that they've created a model now that supports other people in creating similar centers, not a franchise, not a cookie cutter thing, but just where they 
help others adapt the principles that they've refined to create centers where young people can come four days a week, be connected with um, all kinds of optional um, opportunities, whether that's classes or one-on-one tutoring or just independent projects or yeah, just, we're, yeah. yeah, we're, we're going to become an advertisement. Here uh, for, that's okay. For, they deserve it. That's right. Uh, you love it too. Right? I, I do. And, and we have a whole episode with Ken Danford yes, about liberated learners. it's a good learners. episode. Check it out. Yeah. Everyone should listen uh, to that. Yes. <laughs> another thing that is different is just how widespread homeschooling became in the years since you, you wrote the book. Right. Um, just in the National Center for Education Statistics, those numbers, you know, it's it's a huge jump up from something certainly well below a, a million, maybe closer to 500,000, give or take, um, in, in the 90s, up to 1.5, 2 million, where, you know, there are estimates that, that it's more than that. The pandemic makes things a, a, a bit weird. And the last I heard, the number of homeschoolers in the U.S. is back down to pre-pandemic numbers now. Um, although there have been a number of um, young people who never returned to school. Right. Well, then there's all the people who dip into it. Like, like I think back in the 90s, it was more binary, like you were or you weren't. And now there's so many people who have at least tried it or almost tried it or uh yeah it just seems like everybody in my circles anyway either is friends with a homeschooler or is considering it or so was that reflected in the the third edition did, did you did you feel like you didn't have to explain homeschooling basics because of of just this jump up in, in numbers and awareness well if I had been writing it from scratch, maybe I would have felt that. But most of the sections that really explain the principles and such, I left fairly intact. Hmm. Um, and yeah. really, your book's about unschooling. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. exactly. And, and that's still yeah, a not well, very well-known phenomenon. Yeah, it's definitely more well-known uh, yeah. than it was yeah. when the, the, the yeah. book first came out. Um, this is not a question I prepped you for, Grace, so feel free to reject or redirect. But how about your your relationship to the unschooling community? Um, I imagine that the unschooling community was was pretty sparse, pretty thin Mm -hmm. back when you wrote this. And and maybe you can be credited with even um, catalyzing the the, the beginning of a broader unschooling community. Well, I was one of the catalysts, certainly not the only, but yeah. Sorry, then, what was your question? So how has your relationship to the unschooling community um, evolved over 25 years? Um, well, or do you even feel like you have a relationship to the unschooling community? Uh, you know, I feel at this point my relationship is basically through camp, through not back to school camp. So, uh, yeah, it's not something I choose to really um, stay overtly involved with. But because 100 or so unschooling identified kids come to this camp every year um that you know that's my relationship yeah something you wrote in the book is uh, in the the new introduction is if your introduction to unschooling today as as a new potential unschooling parent was through you know some un- unschooling facebook groups maybe you would turn around and head for the hills yeah um yeah, because that's how social media is. Yeah. Not not all, but there's some extremely judgmental, extremely dogmatic groups out there who are always sort of telling each other whether or not they're legit unschoolers, and I I just hate that. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean that that happens on any topic on on social media groups, so it's not specific to unschooling. Yeah. True. Oh, one other big thing that's different between. Uh, first and second editions. And this one is um, the fact that Growing Without Schooling magazine is is gone, is kaput. Yeah. And and even Home Education magazine, like yeah. any, any sort of major right. publications, certainly right. print publications. Print publications, but, yeah. But mm-hmm. even, I'm, I'm, are there even any major online publications re- um, related good question. To, to unschooling? It's I, major blogs. Well, not that I know of. I mean, but there's podcasts, right? I mean, besides yours, which I love um you know that it seems like there's several i don't keep up though um what, what, what was the gap that uh, growing without schooling specifically 
what, what gap was left behind when that, and, and maybe just tell people who have never heard of this. It's referenced a million times in your book. Yeah. Like what, what was it and, and what well, was left behind when it disappeared? Growing Without Schooling magazine was started by John Holt in the 70s. And it first was just this tiny newsletter. Um, probably had fewer than 100 subscribers in the beginning. And it was just, he wanted to connect um, people who were growing without schooling um, with each other. Obviously, it was pre-internet. So, um, and then it grew over time. And it, and what, I mean, there were a lot of wonderful things about it, but it was just packed with stories by kids and by their parents. And um, so it's just packed with this kind of reflective, thoughtful, self-reported, anecdotal, here's how we did it, here's the challenges we're facing, oh, here's a question we're dealing with, and then other families would write in and respond to that. So it's very nitty-gritty. It's it's not at all like slick or, um, oh, you should try homeschooling. There's none of that. It's just, it's, it's very in the weeds, feels very genuine. And as a lot of homeschooling, um, material was back then, it, it really, it, it encompasses a wide spectrum of political and, um, uh, even like practical orientations. It's, it's one thing that I, I, th I think is missing more now, just along with the rest of the polarization in our society. But, but back then it was not, I, I mean, back then the Christians and the crazy left-wing hippies talk to each other. I mean, sometimes those would be one and the same, but, uh, sorry, I'm doing one of my rambles. You're going to have <laughs> no, to pull no, me no, back the, to that. This is good stuff. I mean, oh, it, it, was a, it was a fairly apolitical. Yes. Yeah. I mean, John Holt himself would have been, I mean, he was pretty left-wing, but he also just really supported, um, families and individuals, in whatever they chose outside of schooling and really wanted to support them in communicating with each other. And um, yeah. So by the time Growing Without Schooling folded, which was what in the, uh, in the aughts, I think, past 2000, but not a long ways past. By then, of course, people were able to find each other more on the internet. Um, print publications in general were being less well supported um yeah so i don't think i'm really answering your question all that well but i will say that it lives on because all the back issues are easily available online um which is really great so people can still read it and i think it's still relevant again because the stories in it are so personal and detailed and um there's just still a lot of really good info to be mined there mm. Is my but there, there's nothing quite like it that, no. that exists now. No. Uh -uh. Yeah. Like people perhaps are, are sharing these nitty gritty stories. It's like, oh, here's how my kid followed her curiosity for, for woodworking. But perhaps it's, it's even more analog now. They're, they're sharing it like face to face, maybe in, in Facebook groups. I, I don't spend a lot of time in. Yeah. Well, another thing I should say about growing without schooling, too, is that it was really well edited. So Susanna yeah. Sheffer took over after John Holt died. Um, and her editing is, is not all that visible. It's not like she draws attention to herself, but she, she curated and she reached out and invited stories and she knew so many of the, um, subscribers and she personally worked with a lot of, um, teenagers individually. And so she kind of, more and more knew what to ask for t so that people would write in with their uh, really um, inspiring and informative stories. So, mm. you know, you don't, you're not going to have that on a social media yeah. group. Yeah. Uh, too bad. Yeah. So I wrote down some notes about what's the same in the, the new edition and, and what's different in the new edition. And, from my perspective as your editor, a longtime fan and reader, um, part one and part two of the book, part one is titled The Decision and part two is titled The First Steps. Um, that felt largely unchanged um, mm -hmm. with our, our current edition versus the first and yeah. the second. 
And and why? Why do you think that that's largely unchanged over the course of 25 to 30 years? <laughs> well, it's partly, un- I mean, it, of course it's changed a bit, but um, it's largely unchanged because I wouldn't know how now to rewrite it and for it still to be a coherent part of that book. So that's maybe not the pretty answer, but it's really weird to co-write with the part of you that is half your age. Once I think I told somebody this project is like trying to mate with my 26 year old self. (laughs) Um, So that's part of it, but it's also that it just has its own, um, its own, it holds together. I don't, I just don't think I had too much to add. Plus that stuff is the timeless stuff. It's the principles and the, um, it's the big picture and the big picture in most things doesn't change as rapidly yeah. as. And, and, and it, it certainly reflects the fact that the experience of being a middle or high school student in the nineties is not that different right. from the experience of being a middle or high school student in the 2020s. Yes. Weirdly. I keep thinking I must be so out of it and things must have really changed. And then I get some window into it and actually it's, shockingly the same because the structure is still the same it's still teachers telling kids what to do but (laughs) also the state and the administration telling the teachers what to tell the kids to do you know it's not like anybody's a free agent there and in the in-between years there was no child left behind there was new emphasis on common core there was was more standardized testing yeah but that really doesn't doesn't change much. Doesn't change. The, the facts on the ground for no. unhappy, disconnected, bored, frustrated, yeah. you know, too active, you know, yeah. too physically active teenagers. Yeah. 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 The, the core problem remains. The core problem remains. <laughs> That's, yeah. Uh, you're a huge fan of libraries. And um, in the earlier editions of the book, you um, you talk about teenagers, you know, going to libraries, having relationships with librarians, uh, browsing, uh, kind of making use of all these resources. And, and libraries are, are still here. Librarians are still here. Yes. Uh, but I think you personally, Grace, might be more intimately involved with with a library than, than anyone else uh, <laughs> in the world. Um, it strikes me as that libraries are, are not places that like back in the 90s, they were not places that many teenagers hung out. And, and now they, there are even fewer. Am I being yeah. cynical? What's your take on this? Oh, I don't think you're being cynical. But uh, that doesn't mean they're not an incredible resource still. Uh, I mean, not sure what to say about this. Just because something you're, isn't you're fighting popular for them. enough. You're, you're advocating for them. You're like, don't yeah. forget the library. Yeah. And you know, libraries now, they often have these really special young adult sections and lots of energy goes into those. And I'm sure those are wonderful. But also, when I was like in grade school, so I was probably around 10 or 11, me and my brother, Ned, got interested in secret codes and ciphers after reading some little simple children's book. And then we wanted to explore further. And so that was the first time I ever went into the upstairs adult part of the library because we quickly exhausted the children's section on codes and ciphers. Um, And I remember that sense of like, oh my God, this vast world. And, you know, we had these really fat tomes that even now I probably wouldn't understand on, you know, World War II style cryptography. Um, Anyway, what is my point? My point is just, yeah, you don't need to limit yourself to the young adult section and you should go to the library. And <laughs> as I understand it, browsing the library and, and talking with an experienced curator like a librarian yeah. is a nice antidote to just getting stuck in your little online echo chamber or just well, looking so. at, at the first page of Google results. I think so. Like yeah. even just going to the shelf, like maybe there's one book you want and you go to the shelf to see that book and then you look at all the other books near it on the rest of the shelf and maybe you look to the left and to the right as well because that's where the slightly different but still related categories are yeah it's a different way it's a different kind of search engine i guess it is yeah it's, it's a form of discovery and yeah and your intellectual life will certainly be poorer if you never discover this that's right this method it yeah. will be when i discovered your book i was um 
I had just fallen in love with the the, the library stacks at, at UC Berkeley, uh, and and I would just sp- oh. I would go down there to to focus and do my homework, and then I would spend another hour just just wandering, yeah, and, and exploring mm. and doing exactly what you said, which is like mm. maybe starting with one or two books that I I wanted to go find because someone had recommended them to me, and then just going left and going right, going up up one uh, row and and down another row, and. And the things that I stumbled onto mm. were, you know, some of them still resonate with me Do you me remember today. any of the things oh, you yeah. stumbled on? Yeah, there was, uh, there was, I was truly just idly browsing in uh, in the Moffat Library in the Environmental Science mm. and History section. And that's when I stumbled onto Cadillac Desert. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which then like had a huge influence a huge, on you. Yeah, as someone who grew up in, in California and just had this love and curiosity for everything that happens in the mountainous west, understanding uh, the water systems and, and how fragile the the water situation is mm-hmm. in the West and the and the fascinating history and politics. This guy was just such a good writer, making a history and and in recent history come alive. Um, yeah, th- this was a book that I had no time to read as part of my formal curriculum, right. and I made time for it mm. anyways. Mm. Um, so I'm just saying, cool. uh, you you spoke to me. Uh, with that, with your your mm. undying love and advocacy mm. for libraries, um, uh, a few things that are brand new in the third edition. Um, you describe some sort of uh, like modern methods for learning. There, there's one brand new chapter called Eyes, Ears, Essays, Email Strategies to Learn Anything, um, and then there's a another section soon after that that. Uh, in which you essentially guide the reader in in making sense of all the the content recommendations and making sense of all the different like modalities for learning and and there are a lot of them and mm-hmm. it, and it does seem overwhelming and it seems like a, a real problem that you decided to address in the book was mm-hmm. like what do you do with an overwhelming crush of of possible information how do you choose what what's quality and what's not beyond mm-hmm. just here are Grace's personal recommendations. Right. Beyond what are Grace's personal recommendations or the other side of the spectrum beyond this Google search bar on my phone. Yeah. Sorry. What was your question? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't ask a question. <laughs> okay. uh, but my question is, um, what what kind of recommendations um, did you did you make for yeah. teenagers about how to separate the wheat from the chaff? Right. Well, those two chapters, which were largely, to some degree, they were reorganized material from previous editions, but then updated. Um, I realized that there was a broad distinction I wanted to make between um, activities, actions that any of us can take to learn, uh, and then on the other hand, resources, so things that other people have created and are out there in the world awaiting our pleasure. So um, so methods versus resources. So that, so that first one, you eyes, ears, emails, essays, I think, things we can do, actions that any of us can take, whether that's just listening, listening with intention to um, a conversation on the subway in a foreign language that we might be studying or um, writing as a pathway to understanding and learning, um, engaging math as a way not just to learn math, but as a way to model or better understand any subject that we're interested in. So just trying to prod the reader, I guess, to think in terms of what are some of the ways that in my own mind, I can orient myself to whatever I am interested in. And John Holt said something, which I think I quoted at the beginning of that chapter. Oh, here. Whoa. Look. Well done. Okay, reader, well uh, listeners, I just magically <laughs> opened to chapter 17. That was kind of amazing. Um, oh, yeah, I do. I have it at the top of the chapter. It's John Holt's quote learning is the product of the activity of learners. And he stressed that point over and over that. Learning doesn't happen because we're taught. I mean, good teaching, of course, can help deliver something to the point where we can help make sense of it. But learning happens because of what the learner does in their own mind, in their own perspective, in their own intention. And so that whole chapter is essentially exploring the realm of what that can mean. Um, So what are the activities that we as learners can take to learn anything? 
And like you said, a lot of that material was already in the book. Mm -hmm. But I, I realized that I was being a, a bit, uh, maybe not unfair, but I, I wasn't telling the whole story when I described the later chapters as content recommendation chapters, because there's a lot of methods mm -hmm. and activities that were recommended in there. And this is something that I really enjoyed about the third edition, which is that uh, the, the these methods and, and actions and strategies were, I think, pulled out and made more explicit mm. and, and more clear, like, go and do things, go in and, mm -hmm. and engage. It's not just, here's a list of podcasts and books and, and websites. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of that too, but you say, go do stuff. And, mm -hmm. and as someone who loves to pontificate on how to be an effective self-directed learner. I've, I've taken away so much from, from what you've written in the book in the past and now. Um, were there any other specific books or websites or podcasts that you discovered through the process of, of re-researching all of this, these content recommendations um, that, that you really fell in love with? Oh. Anything that, that even stands out to you at, at this moment? Like, wow, I'm so glad I discovered that because I was working on the third edition of the TLH. Oh, I know the answer to that is yes, uh, for sure it is. Well, yeah, okay, like one book that comes to mind that I read because of research I was doing was um, a book by Jenny O'Dell called How to Do Nothing. And I think where I recommend it in the book is under the bioregionalism chapter, but I love that book and... Um, just got a lot of aha insights out of it and uh, read it during the book project and then reread it this past January more, even more carefully. I mean, there, there are a lot of books like yeah, that, but that's yeah. one that's fresh on top of mind. Any podcasts or YouTube channels or? <laughs> well, uh, I told you how I uh, discovered Tim Ferriss's podcast because you and our friend Nathan had told me that my book had been mentioned on his podcast so uh so that was that was more of an indirect thing I ended up listening to uh one episode because my book was mentioned there but then I really really liked the way he interviewed and started listening to all his podcasts that doesn't it's not really what you were asking but no, no it is it is <laughs> you know every once in a while you know I think we just want to hear like what is Grace Lee Wellen you know, listen to or, or read. I'm sure that thousands of people wake up every morning asking themselves, what is Grace well, Llewellyn doing right now? Li listen, if, if they're pushing past an hour-long, you know, marker on, on our interview, I bet oh they are God. interested in, in what you read and listen to. Okay. Um, speaking well, of which, two uh, fans at this point. In, the, in the process of wrapping up, the, I wanted to ask about how the self-publishing process was uh, different for you this time around and as somebody who has gone through it many times uh, himself but but always in the the modern amazon powered yeah. um iteration what was self-publishing like for you in the in the 90s i'm, I'm talking about the nitty-gritty oh. parts of like um editing uh you know proofing creating an index uh typesetting uh, printing storing distributing selling taking returns well, it was a huge undertaking. I mean, it was definitely an education in itself and a whole gigantic project in itself. I mean, people, you have no idea. <laughs> um, it was just it was just a gigantic undertaking in everything that you just mentioned, the distribution or the typesetting or just each piece of it was, for me, a major challenge. But... Um, yeah, so now, I mean, partly what what helped me get over the hump of actually making this happen was your email in 2017 in which you said you'd basically hold my hand and you also said, um, you said, it's just easier. You should just do Kindle print-on-demand and, or not Kindle, um, Amazon, Amazon print-on-demand print and it'll be easy and don't be storing books and shipping them out and um, you sort of convince me that it could be easy which it is so thank you <laughs> I'm, gl I'm glad the prophecy has uh, oh yeah up. yeah um but in the early editions you did pretty much everything yeah. yourself, right yeah you, you did not pay for assistance um, I think that's correct yeah. I don't if I did I'm I yeah no I don't yeah. the the form of assistance I paid for was I was a member of the 
Northwest Independent Book Publishers or something like that that had monthly meetings in Portland. I went to three of their meetings and each time had major aha moments. And that was that was what the assistance looked like. And with the third edition, um, you know, I was your editor. After that, I I suggested to you the. To, to pay someone else to, to typeset the book, essentially make it look beautiful in the interior for the, the, the print edition and also yes. pay someone else to, to do the, create the ebook, which is its own little um, tricky language. Uh, and I believe you considered and then summarily rejected uh, each of these recommendations. Yeah, it wasn't really that I summarily rejected. It was more that First of all, it would have been incredibly expensive to get somebody else to design the interior because so many subsections, a long book. Um, and I felt that I could figure it out and I did my best. Um, and it looks great, I have to tell you. And I told you this morning, it looks fantastic. I'm so happy yeah. that you like it because I really appreciate your aesthetic and I think you have a great eye for design and so I'm very happy that you're not ashamed to be associated with <laughs> how it looks inside <laughs> uh, yeah it just it just ended up working out well yeah for me to do it and then the as far as the ebook went I was using InDesign and it converted pretty easily to an ebook and you helped troubleshoot the lingering ebook issues so mm -hmm. i didn't have to outsource that you did your own index for the print book and yes. indexes are not even uh, things for ebooks and anymore yeah yeah there are indexing programs but they lead to really sucky indexes so i did it and it was a beast and i'm glad that i'm not a professional indexer <laughs> Uh, but now, after all the the trials and tribulations in four years, uh, you have the th the beautiful third edition of the book. It's on uh, Amazon print on demand. Is it also on um, what is it? Ingram? Ingram. Yeah, that's why it's available easily from any bookstore anywhere. Yes, yeah. the two platforms. Which means, as long as these uh, giant corporations continue printing. Uh, <laughs> books whenever someone orders them then this book will never be out of print ever right. again yeah um, it is here for for all of posterity <laughs> and uh and your your mission is complete the third edition my work is done yeah <laughs> yours is as well yeah blake you were amazing as an editor and a friend there's absolutely no way this book would be existing right now if not for you and the extremely long detailed in-depth project that you engaged with me so thank you it, sir it was my honor and pleasure <laughs> uh, i remember sorry go on well i just remember like i think you said at some point in this conversation that at some point you kind of realized that it was a longer more involved project but i also remember writing you a few like apology emails like Blake I'm really sorry but I think I'm gonna like add more to this section and and you were always just incredibly gracious and like hey it's, it's your project I support you and whatever you were you were just you really rolled with whatever I seemed to need to do and so thank you I just poured another cup of coffee <laughs> it was fun <laughs> all right thanks so much Chris thank you Blake <laughs>